welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Baram Abu-Deya, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Advanced Endoscopy in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Today, we'll discuss his recent article, Endoscopic Bariatric Therapy, a Guide to the Intragastric Balloon, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology earlier this year. Dr. Abudea, let's begin with some of the basics about obesity in America. How common is it, and how are patients categorized with regard to obesity? Thank you, Dr. Lassi. It's a great opportunity and privilege to be discussing our article accepted in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Obesity is really a big epidemic, both for us in the U.S. and globally. The numbers in the U.S. are staggering, and right now we define obesity based on the body mass index, and we have four different classes of obesity. We have overweight, which is defined as a BMI above 25 to 30, then class 1 obesity, which is BMI above 30 to 35, class 2 is 35 to 40, and then class 3 above 40. The numbers uh, are quite staggering, actually. We have about 88.6 million Americans with class 1 and 2 obesity, and about 19 million Americans with class 3. And obviously, obesity is a common denominator for many of the chronic disease that are associated with morbidity and mortality, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and sleep apnea. Therefore, these numbers are all associated with significant morbidity and mortality to the population. Staggering numbers is a, is a good phrase and kind of somewhat disconcerting, isn't it, for all of our patients? So, Barham, how do intragastric balloons cause weight loss? Is it just a space-occupying effect, or does it alter gastric sensation or gastric motility? Yes. Actually, we've been learning a lot about the role of the stomach in regulating normal human appetite. And appetite, we could divide into two processes, the process of satiation and the process of satiety. Satiation is how much do we consume at a particular meal to reach fullness. Some people eat 300 calories and they're feeling full. Some people require 1,000 calories to get fullness. And that's primarily governed by the process of the accommodation of the stomach where it triggers mechanical receptors that talks to the brain stem and terminate that meal. Then we have the process of satiety, which is when do you pursue your next meal. Some people go a couple of hours before they're feeling hungry again. Others go four hours before they're feeling hungry again, and that's primarily governed by the process of the gastric emptying. There's also gut neurohormones, such as the hunger hormone ghrelin, which is produced by the stomach and indicate a state of hunger so we could pursue eating. So we now realize that the gastric balloon is working on all three processes. It's altering the accommodation of the stomach. It's also altering the emptying of the stomach, and it has some interaction with the gut hormone ghrelin. 
But also it's important to understand what's happened in the stomach it does not happen in isolation. And this is a well-orchestrated system that interacts with the small intestines to trigger the response or the glucose response or the insulin response to a meal. Therefore, any changes in the stomach alters the way that the duodenum processes these signals. And therefore, the mechanism of action seems to be multifactorial, including alteration in gastric accommodation, alteration in gastric emptying, effect on the gut hormone ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, and interaction with the duodenal response to the meal bolus. Great, a much more complicated phenomenon than I think we realize, and certainly a lot still to learn. Barham, there are three different types of intragastric balloons that you mentioned in your wonderful review article that are FDA-approved for the treatment of obesity in the United States. Can you briefly describe each of these balloons to our listeners and kind of explain the advantages and disadvantages to each of these three balloons? Absolutely. Beyond the FDA-approved ones, I think we discussed in the article others that are coming down the pipeline, which are already in Phase three regulatory trials, so stay tuned for these. But right now, we have three balloons or intragastric balloons approved by the U.S. FDA. The first one is the single fluid-filled intragastric balloon, commercially referred to as Orbera. It is filled with a volume anywhere between 450 to 700 cc's. The advantages of the single fluid-filled balloon is the most studied balloon globally. It's been in the market for about 20-plus years with literally hundreds of thousands of implantation. It achieves the most weight loss but also is associated with slightly higher risk of intolerance compared to the gas filled in the gastric balloons, which could work with it in a different physiological pathways. The second balloon is the double fluid-filled balloon. It's two balloon systems connected together. Each balloon is filled with 450 cc's of a saline solution. And the advantage of this balloon is it sits more in the proximal and distal parts of the stomach, so it conforms to the shape of the stomach, which could be associated with improved tolerance of the balloon. But also, it's two independent balloon systems. That means if one were to deflate, the other will prevent the balloon from migrating. The disadvantage is given that it's relatively immobile characteristic, it's associated with higher risks of ulcers, and the weight loss has been somewhat less than the single fluid-filled intragastric balloon. The third balloon, I would not call it a balloon because it's really a balloon system. It's a series of three gas-filled balloons that are inserted by uh, the patient swallowing a capsule. does not require endoscopy to place them. They could be guided in fluoroscopically, or now there's a special machine that percutaneously evaluates the position of the balloon before inflation to confirm it's in the stomach. And these balloons are swallowed at a series of few weeks apart. After you swallow three balloons, balloons, then the three balloon system stays in the stomach for six months from the first balloon and the, all three balloons are removed endoscopically at the three months mark. The advantage of this balloon system, since they are filled with a special formula of gas that contains nitrogen, is they tend to float proximally in the stomach. So they don't likely to affect gastric emptying as much as the other balloons. So they're better tolerated, uh, yet uh, they are less effective than the other gastric or other fluid-filled gastric balloons. So these are the three available balloons. Other balloons that are coming down the pipeline include adjustable fluid-filled balloons and completely endoscopy-free balloons that are swallowed and excreted without the need of endoscopy, but more to follow on these after completion of regulatory trials.
Great, Barb. Thank you for such a nice description. And now, with that in mind, thinking about these three FDA-approved balloons for the United States, can you tell our listeners how you choose an appropriate patient for intragastric balloon therapy for obesity, and are there predictors of success for these patients? Absolutely. So, in general, these balloons are indicated for patients with obesity and a body mass index between 30 to 40 as the primary modality for the treatment of obesity. Now, some has comorbidities requirement to be indicated, such as the reshape, but in general, the class 1, class 2 obesity has been the majority of, of use for these balloons. Now, outside of these parameters, the balloons could be used as a bridge to other surgeries that weight loss is of significant importance. For example, hip or knee replacement, where we know that if somebody has BMI above 35, the chances of malfunctioning or complications associated with these replacements get higher. Therefore, we have been using these balloons as bridge to these kinds of procedures, regardless of the BMI. So if somebody BMI 45, they're planning a hip replacement or a knee replacement, we use the intragastric balloon as a tool to get the BMI to less than 35 uh, in order to maximize the benefit of the joint replacement. The best predictor for success is motivation. Intragastric balloons are great weight loss tools, but the balloon is going to come out at an interval after placement. Thus, a weight maintenance strategy is going to be critical for success. Therefore, a balloon therapy in isolation does not work well. A balloon therapy with a comprehensive lifestyle and health living program to be built around the balloon therapy works very well. So motivation is the most important criteria for success, and the patient needs to be motivated to participate in this comprehensive lifestyle or health living intervention. Now, we're in the process of looking at clinical and physiological predictors of response because, as I told you, the balloon works on multiple pathways that involve gastric accommodation and gastric emptying. So could we use the genetics of the patient at baseline or the physiology of the stomach at baseline to predict response and predict intolerance of the endogastric balloon? And that's an area of very active research. For example, now we're embarking on understanding using the breath test for gastric emptying that's FDA approved to predict response and tolerance for the endogastric balloon, and we're generating some very nice data to show that we could predict who's going to require early removal of the balloon based on gastric emptying and who's going to respond to it also based on gastric emptying. So these are all active areas of research, but currently uh, I cannot underemphasize for the success of balloon therapy, you need a motivated patient who's willing to participate in a comprehensive healthy living and lifestyle program. And those are great teaching points and that this, as you mentioned, is it's really a tool or a bridge. It's not a definitive solution. So now that we know who to refer for possible intragastric balloon therapy, what patients should we not send you to consider for intragastric balloon therapy? Yes, and this is actually very important. I will emphasize one point is taking a good history of the patient is very important because any surgeries to the stomach, even as trivial as previous placement of a PEC tube or any anti-reflux procedures to the stomach is a contraindication to intragastric balloon therapy because it increases the risk of perforation. Therefore, anybody who has any intervention to the stomach prior, even as trivial as a fundoplication is a contraindication to gastric balloon therapy. Others include large hiatal hernia, more than 5 centimeters, peptic ulcerative disease of the stomach that's active, 
history of inflammatory bowel disease affecting the stomach, obviously any history of gastric neoplasms, significant history of gastroparesis, and eosinophilic esophagitis that's untreated. All are contraindications for intragastric balloon therapies. And now these are the clinical, but there's also psychological contraindications. That's why a psychological evaluation before balloon therapy is important because there is some eating disorders like binge eating or behavioral emotional eating that could be associated with increased risk of complications if these are not managed before the balloon. Therefore, there's also some psychological contraindications that we discuss in details in the manuscript. Thank you. So now we know who to refer and who not to refer. And so once you've chosen a patient for possible intragastric balloon therapy, what do you tell him or her about expected weight loss? Do you say it's 10% of your body weight or 15 or 20% and over what period of time? So that's where the intragastric balloon excels as a treatment option for obesity. I could tell you I've seen hundreds of patients with obesity, and the frustration has been that they are trying to lose weight. Nobody is wanting to be having the disease of obesity, so they've been trying to lose weight. But as soon as they go on a restrictive type of diet, their counter-regulatory mechanisms of hunger catch up to them, and they're not able to sustain the diet. And now they are going through a period of weight loss and weight gain, and they're on upward trajectory because of this yo-yo dieting. What the balloon therapy allows is interruption of this hunger cycle, so patients will lose significant weight pretty quickly in the course of three to six months. Most of the weight loss happens in the first three months, then there's some plateau in the weight loss between three to six months, and then that's the time when the balloon is removed is after six months. However, the average person could predictably lose about 10 to 15% of their total body weight loss at six months with the fluid-filled gastric balloons and about 7 to 10% of their total body weight loss with the gas-fluid-filled gastric balloon. Therefore, this is a good treatment to get the weight off, get the patient engaged in a comprehensive program. Now they're 30, 40, 50 pounds lighter. They're more engaged in exercise. They see the benefit of weight loss. They're feeling great. Now they could participate. They could listen to to coaching, they could understand the value of keeping a food diary and adopting healthy living tactics. So they are much likely to follow them after they realize the weight loss. Therefore, the paradigm has been lose 10 to 15% total body weight loss with the intragastric balloon. Then after six months, switch to an aggressive weight maintenance strategy where we build a program of healthy living behaviors around the balloon therapy. So, Barm, now that you've selected a patient, is the next step just sending them to the endoscopy suite and placing the balloon? Or, as you kind of alluded to, are there other members of the team? And as an example, do you have all of your patients meet with a dietitian, or do you have everybody meet with a psychiatrist in advance? Absolutely. So, as I said, the success or failure of intragastric balloon therapy depends on this team concept. At minimum, physician embarking at offering the balloon should have access, whether at their own facility or through now there's available online services to a nutritionist, to a psychologist, or healthcare coach, and to allow them to administer a component of lifestyle intervention to patients undergoing balloon therapies. This is what's going to help maintain the weight loss after the balloon removal and offer the patient the most chance of success. Now, I could tell you how we do it at the Mayo Clinic. We take this very seriously, and our journey with patients wanting to embark on an intragastric balloon starts two weeks before they make it to Mayo Clinic. 
So two weeks, we built a program based on healthy living components of the Mayo Clinic diet. We sent them this diet two weeks before with the homework to start implementing some of these changes before coming to us. They come to us on Monday. They participate in two full days in our healthy living facilities where they meet with a nutritionist, they meet with an exercise physiologist, they meet with psychologists, and more importantly, we start tailoring a healthy living plan around their needs where we put goals based on their lifestyles as far as keeping food diaries and exercising and shopping for foods and food choices and eating at restaurants and what have you. Then at day three, so now uh, they come Monday, Tuesday, they're participating in the program, Wednesday, they come, they get their balloon. Thursday, they're meeting their healthcare coach that we assigned to them. And then they're going home and they are implementing the healthy living program with their healthcare coach over the 12 months after the balloon placement. So I think these principles are going to be the key to the success of intragastric balloon because, as you know, there is no cure for obesity. And definitely a temporary device that's placed and removed is not going to cure the disease, but it's going to be a tool to manage it effectively in addition to the principles of healthy living and behavioral changes. It really sounds as if this comprehensive multimodal therapy program is really the key to success. So now you see somebody back in follow-up and they've lost that 10, 15% of their total body weight. What's the next step? Do you go to another balloon or do you send them to the bariatric surgeon for a ruin Y or gastric sleeve? So failure to respond to the endogastric balloon, I think we're now realizing has real genetic, physiological, and behavioral components. So some people, we place the endogastric balloon, their gastric emptying is delayed by 50-60%, their hunger dials are dialed down with the gastric balloon, and they lose weight. So that's the average patient. What we're seeing is some patients, you put the balloon, they're not as responsive. That means there's little delay in gastric emptying, and their hunger response is not dialed down as other patients. So there's some physiological basis for a lack of response, but these are the minority, but picking these up is going to be important. Then there's also behavioral components. Some who are thinking that a balloon is the magic solution do not participate in lifestyle interventions, and they don't change their eating behaviors to accommodate the balloon. That could be another reason for failure of the endocastric balloon. So I, we initially tried to tease out what's the reason for failure, but if somebody is not responsive to the endocastric balloon as first go around, they're poor candidates for another balloon. So if it didn't work the first time through, for whatever physiological or behavioral reasons, then it's not a good idea to subject the patient to another intragastric balloon. However, if somebody was responsive to intragastric balloon in the first go around, now six months after removal, they start struggling again and they're desiring another balloon, then sequential balloon therapy could be a reasonable management strategy for these patients because they responded the first time through. In general, failure to respond to gastric balloon, especially when the patient meets criteria for bariatric surgery, should trigger escalation in care to bariatric procedures or bariatric surgical procedures such as the sleeve gastrectomy or the row and Y gastric bypass. However, it's important to emphasize that there needs to be a waiting period because the balloon induces some changes to the gastric wall of the stomach, makes it a bit thicker, that reverse in about two to three months. So before embarking on bariatric surgery, it's very important to wait two to three months before you escalate care to bariatric surgery. Farm, we all recognize that no medication and no procedure is completely free of any possible complications or adverse events. What are some of the complications of intragastric balloons that our listeners need to know about? What might they encounter in a clinic or in the endoscopy suite? 
This is also one of the very important messages that we need to emphasize. Intergastric balloons are technically easy endoscopic procedure. Learning curve is very short, and gastroenterologists could get experience in putting them pretty quickly. It doesn't mean that the procedure is technically easy. It's free of complications. We are putting a foreign object in the stomach that occupies the majority of the gastric space. Until the stomach starts accommodating to this, patients will experience symptoms of nausea and vomiting. Sometimes these are quite severe in the first few days after therapy until the stomach accommodates to the gastric balloon. Therefore, a good follow-up program is a key of success. Most of the complications arise because patient gets the balloon and then disappears in the horizon and nobody's following up with them. So they get nausea vomiting, they could get low potassiums, and they could get complications associated with that. Therefore, managing these what we call accommodative symptoms in the first week after the procedure is going to be crucial for safety. Serious adverse events associated with the balloon, if you have a good program, should be very rare. There's small risk of balloon deflation and migration. There is small risk of causing a phenomenon called hyperinflation, where the balloon gets a gas into it and becomes large, causing some discomfort in the abdomen. There's small risk of causing damage to the lining of the stomach or ulceration. These risks are are very low as long as you have a good follow-up program with the patient. And in that case, the balloon therapy should be very safe and effective. Barham, as we kind of wind down here, if one of our listeners wants to be trained in placing intragastric balloons, how does that happen? Are there specific review courses or training programs for that provider? Yes. So it's very important to a gastroenterologist who's embarking on adopting intragastric balloon into practice to understand the disease of obesity first. So you need to really understand this as a disease, the determinant of the disease, the available therapeutic options. And once you build this fundamental knowledge base of the disease, then adopting balloons should be pretty straightforward. So what I encourage people is to go learn about obesity because our current curriculum for fellowship in gastroenterology does not teach us enough about the disease of obesity. Resources to learn about the disease, including taking the American Board of Obesity Medicine, which is available for gastroenterologists to, to take. The Association of Bariatric Endoscopy is another resource that has multiple seminars and webcasts and courses to discuss these issues. There is the power statement from and the obesity resources from the AGA that could be a resource as well. Whatever resource you choose, I think building a fundamental knowledge base of the disease of obesity is going to be important. Then the technical skills of how to do the procedure and what's the component that you need to have in your practice, these could be easily learned from the mandated training programs that the companies offer. So every balloon that's approved, the FDA mandates a training program, and these are available from manufacturers of the balloon, and the technical aspects could be easily learned from these. As long as the provider familiarizes with themselves with the disease of obesity and the important component for success after balloon therapy. Great, thank you. So Barham, this has really been a wonderful conversation, and I know our listeners learned an awful lot. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Yes, I would like to thank you again, Dr. Lassie, and the journal for this very valuable opportunity. My final departing thoughts is, unfortunately, our health care system is still viewing the chronic disease of obesity as a life choice rather than a chronic relapsing disease with serious health consequences. 
there is significant therapeutic nihilism in our management of this disease, enhanced actually by lack of insurance coverage and responsiveness to the magnitude of this problem. So the paradigm for managing obesity has changed to a model of chronic disease, much like that of hypertension and diabetes, with an initial weight loss strategy to get the patient engaged in a lifestyle program that devices like the intracastric balloon would excel in doing that, followed by an aggressive weight maintenance phase that counteracts the physiological changes that led to obesity. So I think the message is we need to be more serious and more aggressive in the management of this disease because as we started this podcast, the numbers are staggering and the degree of morbidity and mortality associated with obesity is prohibitively high. Barham, once again, thank you for a great educational discussion. We can't thank you enough. Thank you, Dr. Lassie.